Good morning, church. So today's Bible reading is from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, starting at verse 13 and finishing in chapter 5, verse 11. And it will be up on the screen behind us. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangels and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or or to to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, But let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. It's wonderful to hear you talking so much, so loudly. Please do continue that with a coffee in one hand after our service. There is a uh, over coffee question I'd encourage you to consider talking to, sharing with those as you meet with them uh, as well. Over the last four weeks, we have been exploring 1 Thessalonians, and I've called our series The Gospel Family, looking at how believers relate to one another. We've seen uh, that we should celebrate the wins along the way of Jesus, what he's doing in our lives. We've seen how we should be authentic with one another. We've seen how it's good to long to be with those in Christ who we love, But last week we saw that we should live to please God. Well, today, it's the hope of Jesus' return. That's what I've called it, from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And the big idea, continuing the theme of gospel family, is this. The gospel families should encourage one another with the hope of Jesus' return. And Amanda did a great job of reminding us of that in the All Ages talk. By way of structure, so we know what this passage looks like, uh, you'll notice there are two sections to it. 
First thing is grieving with hope in the end of 4, verse 13 to 18, followed by um, uh, staying awake, the call to stay awake, in verses 1 to 11 of chapter 5. These verses continue the theme of uh, how to live to please God, which Paul began in chapter 4. Both sections are united by the return of Jesus, and they're written so that the believers in Thessalonica won't be uninformed, verse 13 of chapter 4, or surprised, the first four verses of chapter 5. You see, the church was struggling with how to grieve because believers were dying. And they also needed to know when Jesus will return and how it's an encouragement to live a life of faith, hope, and love because we don't know when he's going to return, you see. Both of these sections end with a command. The first two we've seen in the whole book in verse 18 and 5.11 that says encourage. Not just you should be encouraged, but a command of encouragement. Be encouraged. And because the encouragement was Paul's aim when he wrote this, it's actually really necessary that we hear these words as encouragement too. That you would be encouraged today as we talk about when believers die and how we grieve, but also when the return of Jesus. And there's lots of theological discussions we can have, but when Paul wrote it, he actually wanted to encourage those sad and grieving and unsure. So be encouraged, because that's how Paul intended these words to be taken. So let's just look at the first point, and we'll walk through this passage today. A couple of years ago, I began reading all of the Daniel Defoe novels. Does anyone know who Daniel Defoe is? John, who is he? He's a writer? <laughs> His most famous one? Anyone? Robinson... And Caruso. Yes, I started reading it. It's a great, um, great story. And I thought, I'll read all of them, all the books he's written. And there's, there's lots. And um, I haven't got through them yet. But one of them, which I started reading, because it intrigued me by the title, and he's very good at writing short titles. Here, this is so short. He says, A Journal of the Plague Year Written by a Citizen Who Continued to Live in London. It's the title of the book. And Penguin released it and just said, um, Journal of the Plague Year, because it was fitted better on the page. But... It's written from an eyewitness account that he gathered of the bubonic plague in London in 1665. One of the most confronting scenes in that entire book was the graves they dug in churchyards to dispose of the corpses. Just big holes and they piled them in day after day. And he he went into great detail about seeing that and what it was like. And I would never have imagined that in March last year when I read that that I would see and hear of similar events happening in India and Brazil and PNG because of COVID. Death is very real for us at the moment. Some of us here have felt the struggle with limited numbers of funerals. We've all heard stories of those coming from overseas to a funeral yet being denied because of quarantine, actually going to that funeral to say goodbye. In my generation, this is a level of death, the scale of tragedy that I've never seen, that we've never seen before. 
But today our text is not talking about death out there. As I said, it's written for encouragement when we face death in here, in the church, among believers. But it is very relevant to those watching on. You see, it's often by the way Christians talk about death and face it and grieve and sympathize and weep with others that can change how someone navigates death when it comes along their way. So it is very relevant for what's going on out there, but not the way you think. So the Thessalonians, what's going on with them? We find How do we find encouragement from this particular passage? So Pastor Paul, who wrote this, he loves these people to bits. And he knows that there is grief and sadness and confusion in their community because the believers are dying. No plague, nothing like that, no pandemic, Just they're just dying. And into this sadness, he wants to give them a piece of new information, very important piece, that will process, help them process and reassure them that it's actually going to be okay. What is this new piece of information they need to know? It's in verse 13. Brothers and sisters... We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Do you know Jesus cried when his friend Lazarus died? Sadness in the face of death is okay. Grief is the right response to mourn someone. In fact, when Jesus saw those weeping over Lazarus, Mary, Martha, his friends... He was deeply moved and troubled. John eleven thirty three. You could understand that as almost an anger that Jesus felt, a disturbed deep in his spirit at that moment. Why? Jesus felt grief and sadness because death even existed. He hated it. He hated what it does to people and lives. Yet Jesus is not just an observer of death, he experienced terrible suffering and death himself. God therefore understands the suffering we experience. Instead of coddling death and celebrating it as we often do in our culture through zombies and vampires to say the least, making it beautiful, fun, popular, easy, Jesus says it's abhorrent. This is not the way it should be. We should grieve and be sad. But in Jesus, our grief takes on a different perspective. Why? Because of his resurrection. What does Paul want them to know? You live in Christ and you die in Christ. Notice notice verse 14, it says, For we believe Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Belief in Jesus' resurrection is a reason for hope. Yes, you will see a loved one again because God will raise them from the dead. And it will happen when God brings us to Jesus, the one we love the most. And we will all rejoice in being with Jesus when he returns. Which means we grieve believers dying, like saying farewell at the airport. Someone going to the UK, for example. You you, you grieve, you're sad they're leaving, but not sad that you won't ever see them again. But how does this happen? 16 and 17 tell us. All we need to know, and it's clear, 
that we're on the welcome team, not the organizing committee. You and me are on the welcoming team, not the organizing committee. It says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He moves on now to talk about where our hope should sit. Jesus will come down from heaven in all of his sovereignty and power and glory, complete with very loud trumpets, cries, voices of angels accompanying him. This is next level noise. Two weeks ago, Edward went to his first AFL match ever, and he was overwhelmed by it for the first half. Not because of 39,000 people being there, but because of the noise. The booing, the cheering, every time it happened, he's, he's in his chair, kind of stopped and, and could, trying to take in the, the noise, the sound. And as Jesus returns, creation will hear him coming. This is nothing secret or silent here. And those who are with God, already asleep, will hear Jesus too, because the dead in Christ will raise up when Jesus comes. They'll be the first to the party. And those who are alive, when it does happen, will follow close behind. Verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now notice here that Jesus, he doesn't return to snatch us away from the earth, making us disappear. We physically raise from the dead. Nor do we rise up and continue on like spaceships flying into heaven at this point. There's no mention of us going on. text doesn't say that. Rather, the emphasis is on Jesus coming down with noise and glory and majesty, and we meet him as he comes down. We rise up in the air, welcoming him back to earth. It's the meaning of the word meet. Matthew 25, verse 6, and Acts 28, 15 also use that same word. And in both instances, it's the picture of citizens meeting a king, going out from their place to meet a a king and a dignitary and welcome them back into the city where they came from. In fact, writings from historian Josephus and pastor, Pastor Christendom in 407 AD always use that word meet in that particular way. Going out, meeting the dignitary, giving them honor, bringing them back into the place where you went from. You don't continue on. You welcome them into your place. Which means no one's going to miss out when Jesus comes back. There's no hierarchy. There's no pecking order. There's no zooming off and being left behind. You and me will meet Jesus with Abel. That's the encouragement. Together, those in Christ, dead or alive, will welcome Jesus back into his world as king We will gather around him, join him as he continues his agenda with the world when he brings all things under him. And it begins with the resurrection of his people. So yes, you will see them again. And it will be glorious. Not because eternity is you and your friend having a beer by the fire. It will happen when the king returns. The king who has given you a future and who will reign Therefore, we don't have to grieve without hope or die without hope because of Jesus. We can be encouraged, actually, with this future as your future. Therefore, encourage one another, he says. 
Because when we're confronted with the brokenness of death, when our life is torn apart by tragedy, because of Jesus, we have we can encourage one another with the truth that there will be restoration. There will be a meeting again. And we will meet King Jesus, the one who guarantees that when he returns. And that encouragement can only be given to a Christian. Hear me clearly. If you are not in Christ in life, you will not be in Christ in death. You will die and never experience the joy and the reunion and the restoration that Jesus gives. But it doesn't have to be your future. You can change that. You can know the God who keeps his people close to him in death, who gently raises them to life to meet him, who encourages us. I'm sure if you read these verses, had them read out today, many of you have brothers and sisters and husbands and wives and daughters and sons and friends and family who come immediately to mind. Those who love Jesus, who have since gone to be with him, and every year you feel the hot tears down your face, you think of what was, you look at photos and videos and you see the memorials and it's sad. Yet because they're in Christ, you grieve with hope. You face loss knowing where they are and it is sad and you should grieve. But you do so knowing that Jesus has them. But there's more to this than what's going on here. Having just dealt with those who have fallen asleep in Christ, Paul now assures them, and us as well, that even though you don't know when Jesus will return, it's actually the best encouragement to live a life of faith, hope, and love. His big idea in the second half, in 5, 1 to 11, is to just stay awake. So as you grieve, grieve with hope, but also as you live, live awake. And to stay awake, you have to know what time it is. As a parent, and if you're a parent, you know this, or you've had it done to you, um, I use time in lots of different ways with my kids. And classic example is the two minutes. You have two minutes. And depending on how I feel or what's happening, that two minutes could be one minute, 20 seconds, or it could be an hour, depending on what's going on. You have two minutes. Or I'll say something like, later on, we'll do that. And later on could mean after lunch or in a week. I use the word time in very rubbery ways with kids. But the Greek people, when this was written, they had two different words for time, which made it much easier. Firstly, they had chronos time, which is where we get chronological from. You know, a measured view of time. At 8 o'clock, we'll leave for school. Succession. Or they had kairos time. This is This is one of those moments when... Time still goes one, two, three, four, but your relationship seems to change. And you've all had it, I'm sure, when you hear someone speak and it's 30 minutes and you look at your watch and go, wow, that felt like five. It wasn't actually five minutes, it was really 30, but your relationship to time changed in that moment. And in 5 verse 1, Paul uses both those words to tell us that actually none of them are helpful when thinking about Jesus coming back. Look at what he says. Uh, Brothers and sisters, about the time, chronos, 
and dates, Kairos, we don't need to write to you. Why? You know very well. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What matters is not knowing the time, but understanding the day. The day of the Lord. And we need some background to that. We weren't there when Paul wrote this or what he explained to them. It's a foreign concept to many of us, this day of the Lord. But it began with the Old Testament prophets who looked forward to the time when the Messiah would arrive, a greater David, a greater king would come and rule and reign and vindicate God's people for the enemies, judge evil, establish God's kingdom on earth. It was a very busy day. They looked forward to it. And then Jesus, in his life and his death, he fleshed this out even more. And he says, in my death, resurrection, and ascension, the day is dawning. It's beginning. You could say it's the now and the not yet. Now we have forgiveness and grace, as Shannon talked about, in Jesus. People discovering that, living that, awaiting his return, when one day... Sin will finally be dealt with, evil destroyed entirely, bringing God's good and perfect world together. You can imagine it like this with your hands. If you put one hand here and one hand here and look over the top, you can see both, but you don't get the best picture yet. And so we live in between the now and the not yet. Glimpses of what's to come in our homes, our churches, as God's at work in our lives. Very aware of the now with the suffering and the death, the evil, our lives out of joint. But our hope is in the not yet. And when Jesus returns, the not yet will begin. Which means when is irrelevant. Because it will happen like a thief in the night. But again, Paul writes this so he wouldn't be surprised by all what's going on. We're to live knowing it. Live expecting the not yet to happen. Because as verse 3 says, most people will not expect it. Why they're saying peace, security, destruction will come on them suddenly. Like labor pains on a pregnant woman. At 34 weeks, fainting in the car park, you realize you're going into labor and you have no idea what's going on and it's just all of a sudden that happens. That was my mum's experience giving birth to me. And so too will the day of the Lord happen a bit like that. People won't expect it. She's walking in Tea Tree Plaza, actually, after going shopping. Fell over, fainted, because she started to go into labor. So too, there'll be people that will not expect the day of the Lord and God's judgment to come. But because we know the time, because we belong to the day, we can encourage one another to stay alert. And that's verse 4 to 11. He then uses four images. Uh, to describe the contrasting way of living before the day of the Lord comes. He says, light versus dark, day versus night, sober versus drunk, awake versus asleep. And he applies it to our spiritual life, physical things to our spiritual life. He imagines that Christians have moved, a Christian has moved from day into the, from night to the day, and that's actually light. It's daytime. We're living in the day of where it's bright and light and we can see. And so for Paul, these pictures serve as what life prepared for the day of the Lord looks like. You've moved out of the night. You're in the day. You belong to the day, he says in 5 verse 8. The day of the Lord. It's his day. He he's, invites us into it. Waking up to this new day. It still has to dawn fully. 
but we won't be like those unaware because we'll receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means you live sober now. An image of life with Jesus. Because he then explains what being spiritually sober is. He says it's putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Faith, hope, love, it's, it's something you wear. New pair of clothes. Military clothing, in fact, because it's protective. Guarding the most important parts, heart and mind. You see, to walk in faith isn't walking in dark, not without thought or reason. You don't believe seven impossible things before breakfast to be a Christian. Faith takes the knowledge of God in his word. It trusts that because it comes from a God who is good and never lies or changes or deceives. He is consistent and reliable. And part of faith is that future promise of God, which is a future salvation, And then it gets better because on verse 10, he says he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live together with him. Our future's bright. I can say to you it's going to be okay because Jesus guarantees that it will be. Maybe not tomorrow, but in the day of the Lord it will be. We won't suffer under sin or God's wrath because hope is a concreteness of future salvation. Hope is the future of faith. And love is what happens when faith and hope dwell in us. It's the personal presence of God, right? It leads us to delight and obey in him. Just as in my marriage to Natasha, I I date, delight, speak, enjoy her beauty and who she is, so we do that with God himself too. Love is what makes us say, my Lord Jesus Christ. It's what living with him looks like. Even if we fall asleep in death, because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he ends, therefore, encourage one another. Build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Notice he adds the word build now from the end of chapter 4. It means to construct a building. But it's a non-literal sense here, of course. The way you build up a Christian into a structure that is strong, secure, able to withstand death and persecution, like the Thessalonians were, is with the encouragement, the return of King Jesus. Maybe you've heard someone say, God never gives you anything you can't handle. And it's a lie. God gives you plenty of things you can't handle, except with his grace alone, except with him being your strength. If God gives you things you couldn't handle, then you wouldn't need God. If God gives you things you couldn't handle, then God would be irrelevant. But actually, we're not strong or amazing, but Jesus is. There was a tweet um, from a from someone that said, uh, from a church and it, this week, and it said, don't forget you're, you're amazing, you've got this. And all the people below said, really, what about Jesus? I thought we weren't that amazing, we need him. You know, and, and they just miss, I don't know what the church was thinking, they misunderstood the fact that by grace alone, that when we are weak, he is strong. And so we build each other up with the knowledge that Jesus is coming back. Practically, it means when we do suffer, 
physically, loss, losing our jobs, death. The encouragement is the best is yet to come. The encouragement is when you're distracted with good things in this life, therapeutic things in this life, when you're not alert to Jesus' return, because let's face it, between nine and five, Jesus coming back doesn't often make its way into your head. And when you're living that way, the encouragement is the best is yet to come. Because now is nothing like later. The, the encouragement of all the good things we have, work and, and marriage and sex and family, friends, coffee, creation, it's the trailer before the movie. That's the perspective to have that Jesus' return gives us. Paul is saying, no matter what you do or don't have, no matter what it costs to follow you and delight in Jesus, the full-length movie you're anticipating in this life is going to be streamed in all its glory when Jesus returns. And if you're dead before then, you're not going to miss out. And if you're alive when it happens, that's okay too. And if you grieve in this life, grieve with hope. Because there is coming a day when King Jesus will personally wipe away every tear from every eye and restore the brokenness of you and the world. And that's worth hoping in. And that's worth encouraging one another in. And that's worth building one one another up in. And I want to encourage you with that today. I'm going to build you up in that every week as your pastor, for the joy of Jesus and knowing him more. Let's pray. Wonderful God, eternal, sovereign, creator and sustainer of life, we we recognize our life is short and small and full of struggles Yet in your kindness, in Jesus, you reach down as a person and you see death and you taste it and you go through and pay any price that death could have on us and say, I've paid it in full. But not only that, but you rose to show us there's life afterwards and that when we believe in you, when you are our king, our hope is that the best is yet to come because you will make all things new. And Lord, as we think of those we love that are in Christ and have died, as we think about the struggles in this life, encourage us that the best is yet to come in you. May we be a church that does that to one another. Encourage us this week, I pray, Lord God. Amen. And as you, that's right, come up to me. And as you have coffee, who will you encourage with Jesus' return this week? But maybe the question isn't just who, but who needs to be encouraged with Jesus' return this week? Give it some thought over coffee. Thanks, Tim.